the predicament, environmental and cultural crises that seriously threaten life on this planet, a level of disharmony, discord, and disconnect that would have been hard to imagine even a few years ago. In current openings number four, David Price Francis and Aviv Shahar explore the predicament's origins in what is known as the brain-body conundrum. Our brain, a marvel of engineering and power, continually seeks stimulation and excitement, often in the extreme, and often to the detriment of our bodies, which, by design, are naturally tuned to the regenerative rhythms and energies of this planet. Imagine the predicament multiplied on a global scale. But there is promise in the predicament and a way out of the conundrum, as David and Aviv reveal. You can hear all the current openings conversations on portalsofperception.org and watch the event calendar for the live upcoming events with David and Aviv. Here now, current openings number four, the brain-body conundrum. Throughout history, the great questions have been asked, and great research has been undertaken, always expanding the territory of the known by shining a light into the unknown. Where is that cutting edge today? And can a community of people from all over the world, each carrying their own unique journey of discovery, come together to inquire at the edge of purposeful evolution through conversation? At Portals of Perception, we think it is possible, and we hope that you will choose to be a part of this exploration. Welcome to Portals of Perception, and to the fourth episode of Current Openings, what the world doesn't quite get yet, where David Price Francis and I focus on what is current and explore ways to open its potential and significance. Today, we are turning the focus to the human predicament and the brain-body conundrum. David is the co-founder of Energy Worlds together with his partner, Joanna Infeld. He is the author of Partners in Passion and the Tales of Dr. Wu, A Journey into Truth. He is a spiritual teacher and a transformational expert helping individuals, couples, and groups improve the quality of their lives and relationships. David, welcome. Thank you, Adi. Good to be with you. So on our first episode, we reflected on the three Terex sisters, the exoteric, mesoteric, and esoteric realms, and offered an inroad to the inquiry of what is an esoteric truth. On the second episode, we ask, what are natural laws and why should we care? And then on our third conversation, we introduced a bridging calibration to explain why we felt nudged to embark on a journey where we intend to reflect on the human predicament. So we have also, by the way, described the promissory grace, the anatomy, the phenomenon of the promissory grace, and hinted a little bit to the vision and the direction that we are leading with current openings. So where are you 
in this journey? How is it ripening in you and how do you feel about where we're heading next? Well, getting a first thing before embarking on a journey is actually looking at where you actually are. So it's starting from where we are, and that is why we came upon the human predicament as the primary place of beginning in this series of current openings, discovering the intelligence of it as we go, but that the human predicament we are, one needs to look at the world, at the planet, in its place in the universal system right now to go, wow, the human race is in a predicament. And there's a lot to add up about that. And then to come alongside it, as we discussed in our bridging conversation, with the human proposition. Because if we only stay with the predicament, then we're caught up in a kind of potentially a circling argument. But the human proposition is looking to the future, is looking to what next, what may be next. And so the human proposition has within it to me a great deal of promise for the future. And so both the predicament and the promise, the predicament and the proposition. And I kind of like predicament and promise. That's right where we are at the moment. So to be offering and looking at the esoteric aspect and the mesoteric of what that proposes for the future, which has within it a very hopeful picture, uh, whereas the predicament can look to be quite enclosing and somewhat of a gloomy picture, as comes tends to come at us from the world news. But the actual human proposition, I believe, has a great deal of hope built into it for reasons that we can get to. So the implication is we are embarking on a journey to reflect on weighty matters, but we don't feel heavy or frowningly serious about it in the wrong sense. There is a sense of lightness. And it's more, I would describe it as a choice, as a spiritual temperament that we are bringing to this focus. Because unless you are prepared to, as you describe, this sense of hope and promise, unless you are prepared to bring those kind of energies where you are looking at the challenge in a sober way and at the same time with humility, and you then are prepared to bring into it the sincerity and the tinge of chutzpah. Because if you don't bring those kind of energies, you have no business really entering these inquiries. One way to describe this is the shift from authenticity one to authenticity two. Authenticity one is, which people are remembered by, is the idea that I'm just going to tell you how I feel right now at this moment. That's what people often conflate with authenticity. Fair enough. Authenticity too is being true to what the moment needs from me, being true to what the situation, what the task requires from us. I initially recognized that many years ago when I heard an interview with Meryl Streep and the interviewer asked her, what do you do when you're on set and you don't feel like the character? And I loved her answer. She said, well, I remind myself how much they pay me and I'm immediately in character. (laughs) And in a way, she was describing the inner technology of slapping your own face quickly to enter authenticity too. So I feel that this transition from looking at weighty matters that one could become gloomy about, but actually coming with a stance, with a posture of a mature and maturing spiritual warrior that brings humility and sobriety and readiness to engage 
I feel that's what's called for in this inquiry. Makes sense to me. I think of it as like lighthearted seriousness. Like you get, if you're serious about, if you're very serious and weighty about weighty matters, it's like double weight and it becomes blocked and locked in. So be really serious about things that might look apparently light, but approach really serious things in a lighthearted way to be able to dance with them a little bit. Yeah. So I think that idea of dancing with the truth is a way that I like to think about it. That's very attractive, the way you frame this and the invitation to dance with the truth. And the other sense for me in this is in the idea of humility and confidence. If we don't bring humility, we're going to have a rude awakening because the picture of life and living is a shape-shifting, dynamic, evolving story. And we're likely to, unless we bring humility, wake up tomorrow morning and be surprised. But if we refuse to be confident in stepping forward to engage with life fully, we may already be frozen and petrified by the challenges of living. So there is an ambidextrous dance of being true and authentic to the challenge in the way we embrace it, and at the same time, being light about it. When you look at somebody, and you don't have to be a Buddhist for that, when you look at the Dalai Lama, you'd see him often more laughing than looking morbid. And he had many reasons to be morbid. So his choice, is his posture is a spiritual, spiritual one. I'm proposing you don't have to be a Buddhist, and I'm not necessarily following his faith, there is an exampleship in that idea of humility and confidence and lightheartedness that you describe that invites us to dance with truth. And I'm thinking that we can have confidence in our in what in a way we were given, that is to say, our authentic, original self that we were born with. And when it comes to having confidence in the institutions and the corporations and everything which is external to us. If we put our confidence there, we better be careful. I saw uh, an interview with uh, Warren Buffett recently, another sage, and he was pointing out that of the, I think it was the 100 top companies in the world 30 years ago, that none of them, no, top 30 companies, none of them are there 30 years later. They're all gone. So if somebody was saying, well, I'm totally confident that these are the and a lot would be at that time. These are the future. Well, the future actually turned out to be quite different than what was anticipated 30 years ago, just at that level of external change. So we can have confidence that the future is going to be unexpected. I think that we can have confidence in. So now that we've brought Warren Buffett and the Dalai Lama in this into this conversation, we can proceed into the idea of... Uh, human predicament. And we recognize that this will involve series of conversations and explorations. So here are some of the central inquiries we are looking at to get us started. We are asking why are we using the natural laws in an unnatural way, producing in the process unnatural toxic outcomes? What happened? What are the reasons for the disharmony, the disconnect, the misalignment? And then, what is the brain-body conundrum, and how does it contribute to the predicament? In other words, as a species, why are we going crazy and destroying the natural environment around us? So where would you like to start? Would you believe I'll start with a question that I met yesterday? 
So very current. This was somebody who does dowsing. So this is a dowser, someone who practices that regularly. And the question that came to me was, David, how come that I do my internal measuring or kinesiology, I do my measuring, and I get a positive result. And then 10 minutes later, I retest it, and I get a negative result. How could this be? So I found myself saying, well, let's take an example local to here. I'm living right now in Florida. And it's, a, it's like, you know, people around here, it's known as the, well, whatever, but it's a place where people come to retire. We've got three casinos within two miles. So what people do when they retire is very interesting. You know, the casinos are big here. So a person could be dowsing. Do I go to the casino? And their brain, this is the body brain conundrum. Their brain is like, wow. Yeah, that's very stimulating. I enjoy pulling that handle. I might I get into the whole realm of the energies of winning or losing. It's a high level of stimulation. There's no windows. There's just a smoky atmosphere and there's music playing in the background and flashing lights. Yes, I'm positive on that. Ten minutes later, comes back, tries again. No, this time what's coming through is the body. And the body is like, we don't want to be in a place with no air with smoke, with flashing lights, with a toxic atmosphere, and be subjected to our brain giving us toxic energetic signals, which our brain is capable of doing. So 10 minutes later, the body goes, no, not going there. And the dowser is going, how can this be? Well, because she's caught in that 10 minutes in the brain-body conundrum, because her brain is looking for extra stimulation from wherever it, can, it couldn't find it, but then it's her body that pays the price of that extra stimulation. And our body, to me, is tuned in to the natural laws of the universe. I think we mentioned one time, nobody ever had a heart attack because our heart never attacks us. But by putting in anti-life foods and energies and liquids, you know, by bringing into ourselves toxic substances, we regularly attack our heart. So our body is permanently in the present moment. So when people do mindfulness practice, they're actually emptying their minds. I think of it as mind emptiness, really, in a way. They're emptying their minds so that they can be in the present with their body. That's why often practices include feeling the pulse or concentrating on the breathing. It's to come into the dynamic of the body, our heart, our kidneys, our lungs. All of our body is naturally in the present moment working with natural planetary signals. And they do the very best they can to keep those signals going. Meanwhile, our brain, which is more of a voluntary system, it might be wanting to go and play video games. And it might be bringing in toxic anti-life signals, which then rain down into the body and make it harder for the body to do its job. So we've got this interesting conundrum between a fully automated, autonomic nervous system uh, body and then our brain, which is partly wired to be guaranteed that certain functionings keep going. But then we have this voluntary aspect whereby we can choose what it is we're going to do. And we can choose to be out of harmony with the natural laws. We can choose to spend a day indoors playing video games when we have the option to take a short walk in nature. You know, just an example, but we get to choose what foods, what nutrients we bring into ourselves. And that is such a major part of the disharmony that can then be produced because 
our brain's been given the freedom to choose. And unless we educate it towards processes that are in harmony with universal and planetary processes, we can very rapidly move out of harmony. And we can do, we can make decisions as an example for profit based on the economy that have a very detrimental effect on the ecology. And as we can simply see by natural laws and process, the economy is entirely dependent on the ecology. You know, the ecology is primary and the economy is secondary. And that's a truth of the human situation. We depend on the planet for our existence every moment. So our brain, however, can take us off in a different direction. I would begin there. Yes. So you framed several things. You framed the appreciation that the body is complete, is fully evolved, and is naturally in tune with the natural laws. The brain, that upper part, is incomplete. And when we retrace through some of this later, through the lens of the human proposition, we will ask, what, why is that? And what is the significance? And we have one part that's complete and another part that's incomplete. We will get back to that. But the efficacy of this moment is you're describing how because we filled our heads, our brains with toxic stuff, we find ourselves in this conundrum that you describe in the dowsing conversation. So that's a very powerful and locating description of the predicament right here, right now. So what I want to do today, today I want to try and tell a story of how we got here. And it's a story that's been told by many people and I've told it in several different ways. Today I want to try to tell the story in seven moves. And I'd like to try to tell the story through the mesoteric lens so we can come back to it another time and drop a little more of the esoteric dimension of it. Today, there will be some an esoteric tinge, but the focus of the way we're endeavoring to tell the story today is a mesoteric story through seven moves. So how about if I try to do that in the next few moves? And I think I want to do move one, two, and three, and then see how would you dance with that, and then go one move at a time. How about that as a plan? Yeah, go for it, Aviv. So move one describes what occurred in the transition from the Renaissance to the Enlightenment and the rise of the scientific revolution, where the primary drive was to externalize the phenomenon of knowledge and knowing, to reify, just to concretize knowledge as something that is external to the human and is seen as objective facts. And that move was engendered by prioritizing and privileging external non-living devices and measurement tools. So all of a sudden, the telescope, the invention of the telescope becomes the great excitement and it becomes much more important than anything that's internal to the human, which leads me to move two. The move two was the enabling of this reification of knowledge and knowing as concrete, objectified facts. And the enabling move was the shutting down, the separation from feelings, from intuition, 
from the sense of moral conscience, those inner senses, those inner lives and the significance that they play in the human experience, they will largely shut down as the drive to enable the drive of the first move to focus on the knowledge and knowing as an external phenomenon. Which brings us to the third move, which gets closer to what you were just beginning to describe. So the third move, following the foregrounding of objective measurement-based knowledge, that's move one, and shutting down of feelings, intuitions, instincts, and separation from the inner lives move to, the third move is that we, as a result of that, became more based in our heads, in our brains and much less connected to, the brain is therefore much less connected to the body and to the environment, and as a result, gets separated from the natural vitality, the natural well-being, the natural enhancement of a life. We are, for example, not to compare, and I'm not romanticizing the past, and I will say again and again as we trace through this, this is not an invitation to romanticize and travel back to the 4th century or the 12th century. That's not the invitation which anyway cannot be done. But it is factually true that people were much more robust physically and in other senses as well at the time. We are stronger and more activated in other faculties, not to necessarily to focus on the comparison. But the point I'm making is the third move, because of move one and move two, human life got divorced from the, the main flow of the well-being and the vitality of being alive. Let me pause here and let you dance with these first three moves. Well, in respect of the human predicament, that really points us to the predicament we're in right now, which is decisions get made on the world stage, not on the basis of well-being of people, but more on the basis of intellectual frameworks. So to me, an intellectual framework is something which It's like, say, in a college, there can be a theory about something. Or actually, in world history, a great example is when you get, say, a dictator who has a theory about an agrarian revolution or an industrial revolution, and it works in the theoretic world of their room. And then they put it into practice in the actual world, and it has all kinds of unintended consequences, which turn out to be far greater than their initial conception. And what they're trying to do, it turns out, is in disharmony with the organic trace of human life. So I think that's exactly right in the respect of developing a certain part of our brain. So I've been very interested recently in the whole dynamic of you know, the cerebrum, the front part of our brain, and how we use it. And it gets so educated, like going to school, going to college, and we get these facts and reference systems, but they don't take into account almost like the juice of life, the the magic. I think there's a loss of magic. You know, like you go to a university lecture and it's usually prepared and it's transmitted as it is, maybe with a PowerPoint, but it doesn't have the magic of being in the moment with new information arriving, new intelligence arriving, new possibility arriving. We're so governed by precedent. I think this is, I, saw, I was once at the Old Bailey in, in Britain, a major law court there. And at that time, they hadn't got, computers weren't yet really in taking over. So you'd see people arriving with barrel, with books, massive amounts of books. They had to have special trucks to bring them in. 
to show the precedence from 1763 or 1836. Everything was being governed from the past through the reference system of what had been done with very little openness to new newness in the present. We yeah. lost the capacity to trust our, our ability to reason in the moment and, as you said, to be open to new intelligence, a new way of seeing things. So I think of that in terms of the human. The predicament now is how governed are we by precedent and what has been and uh, looking to the future and how not to be entirely governed by past precedents. Yeah. So that leads us to the fourth move. Because what we're describing is how when we got so much in our heads, we got separated from the natural vitality and, and well-being. Some of the byproducts of that is what you're describing, so much being locked in history, looking back at precedence. And the fourth move that comes into this is that with this realization that we became so focused on measurement-based knowledge as an external product, and therefore the brain gets separated from the body such that we are talking about that conundrum and that leads to that void, literally void in the system because the natural flow of life, well-being, is no longer there when the separation takes place. Well, this is a universe that upholds void. So something rushes to the universe, rushes to fill the void. And the expression of that is in the brain's case, the brain is running amok, building even more dependency on outside reference, as you are describing. And one other element in that, that we started braining our way forward to address this imbalance, and thereby creating a toxic loop. And that's one of the examples to using the natural laws in an unnatural way, because the, the human system, the brain, they're wired to find, to replenish, to rebalance. But when the brain is separated from that natural flow, it cannot balance itself, it will just run to reproduce more of itself. One example of that in this day and age is we're living in a so highly over-sexualized world. The over-sexualized world is a byproduct of the imbalance. Sex can actually be an effective balancer, but not when the brain is separated from the body because there isn't that balancing loop that could take place. So then the question is, what happens when brains run amok? And what we are in a way that's divorced from the broader context. And what we are describing is that it leads to invention. And some of invention is great. Some of the invention, especially when it gets separated from context, is not so great. But it's that brain capacity that unlocks and drives to what you mentioned a few minutes ago, the Industrial Revolution. We're braining our way forward, unleashing the power of the Industrial Revolution. And as a species, industrialization had some brilliant things about it, but was not so brilliant is that it got separate, got captured from the broader sentiment and intuition of life, leading to 
building in one way awesome capabilities, but producing even greater imbalance in the process, which leads us and led us to move five, where brains disconnected from that natural enhancement and therefore running amok to give rise to the industrialization. When you look at that trace, that vector, all it needs is one more element to create a truly lethal combination. And that one parallel line is the development of the modern banking system, free markets, and the brilliant innovation of return, money return on on money. So in, in other words, the capacity to deploy your money, to get on that money, more money. That invention that unlocked greed-driven, exploitative, extractive approach to natural resources and what you have is a truly explosive unlocking of that brain drive to ultimately escape the natural worlds and reassert its control and, in essence, gain its immortality, so to speak, through that story. So that's move four and five. How would you dance with that, please? Well, how I dance with that is to point out that the brain functions got disconnected, you could say, from natural morality, not intellectual morality, but the natural morality. Let's take an example, which is a disconnected brain seems nothing wrong with creating a tank or creating weapons of war. Actually, it's exhilarated by it. And making even more so when making large amounts of incoming funds from that. So there's no breaks. So whatever can be produced, so long as it is able to produce a return back financially, is produced. Now, you may then say, well, that's where government comes in. But government is very influenced by finance in that regard, as we well know. And so there's no natural morality in terms of there isn't an elder. Like if we went to the Iroquois, if we went to the peoples who are more connected to the planet, my understanding is that if the men got together and decided that they were going to go and have a special operation with the Seneca, and they were going to go and attack the Seneca, before they could do so, they had to take their decision to the Council of Women, which they called the Blue Council. And the Council of Women would either ratify it or say, no, that's no go. And blue is the color. I think of it this way, that red is one nature of driving power. But blue is more the color of our planet. And the blue provides a natural morality. So if someone goes to the Blue Council and says, well, I've created this amazing thing where you persecute an atom and it releases this incredible amount of power and a great big mushroom cloud and nothing can live there for X period of years and it's going to cause genetic mutation all over the place. Shall we go ahead with it? Well, a Blue Council will say, well, absolutely not. That's not constructive to human life. But we lost the bit in our brain, can't speak all of, but as a society, we seem to have lost that function in our brain that actually says, hold on a minute, is this good for not only our own personal body, but you could say for the body of the planet. And this is where we get the movement, the ecology movement, trying to push back the other way. But I think the bigger predicament is how, as you say, how do we get there in the first place? How do we get to a situation where the most, my most recent understanding of it 
is the most profitable industry on the planet is weapons of war. The second most profitable is drugs. And the third is food. Food isn't top of the list. Feeding ourselves is third on the list. But fighting and drugging is one and two. And then comes food. There's something that's fundamentally like deranged about the situation. And that derangement doesn't come from our body. It comes from the way that we think and the way we use our mental faculty. So I'm right with you in, in respect of that journey, yes. And you're seeding again that within the context of the human proposition rather than the predicament, there is an exampleship. Again, without romanticizing, and nevertheless, there is an exampleship in the Iroquois way where every decision, every important decision, is looked at through the lens of its impact on all life and on generations into the future. So in yes. your example, the choice may be, we could probably conquer the Senecas today, but it will be not advised to do so because that karma could be reversed a generation down the line. And so this is where we're telling this story. And the pivot we were describing in Move 5, so first we got separated from the natural well-being and enhancement, and then that continuum goes all the way to the end where the socio-economic incentive structure is what is catalyzing this idea of exploitative, extractive, greed-driven impulse on all fronts, leading to what you are describing, David, as the two most profitable industries are the industries that destroy life rather than the industry that feeds life, which is indeed the lead to Move 6. Because Move 6 developed the momentum of the first five moves by establishing the cumulative results. How? Well, by simply giving rise to systems and institutions and power structures that are not life-giving and not life-supporting, but are life-exploiting and life-sucking, really, using the human instead of supporting the human, ultimately epitomized through the paradigm that sees us humans no longer as the creative beings that we are, but as the consumer. <laughs> now, this is an interesting one, establishing the consumption-based socioeconomic paradigm. Some of the roots of that idea to look at the consumer behavior instead of the human behavior, some of it can be traced to, oh, well, two or three hundred years ago to the early stages before and through the early stages of the Industrial Revolution. But truly as a central focused inquiry and interdisciplinary space of research, it only comes to the foreground in the middle of the 20th century. So we're really looking at a rather very recent phenomenon. And when you look at the entire human story through these lens of consumption and talking, I mean, who the hell is the consumer? It's each and every one of us. So you show up here as a young, brilliant, gorgeous, funny, vibrant life. And somewhere along the journey, you're being converted into a consumer. It's insane. 
And not only you are converted into a consumer, you're actually surrounded by all the cues and the nudges that leads to the neurotransmitters, incentivized behavior that drive consumerism. Now, Adam Smith is often talked about as the idea shaper of what became free market economies. But he also believed and wrote another book which he called The Moral Sentiment. And the argument at the time was that they believed that the human is and was a moral being. And they argued that the human can be led by conscience and can find the impulse of self-restraint. What you just talked about exampled the idea that they were he was both right and wrong. Factually, he was wrong because the evidence of the last two centuries is that we have not been able to restrain ourselves. He is right that we have that moral instinct and that we have the capacity to trust and to love and to share and to care. The trace we are describing and the brain-body conundrum we are focusing on today is that because of this particular trace we're describing, we have been trapped, we have been captured. And when the brain is captured in those institutions of power and the incentive structures that they have developed, we are no longer able to trace and access the moral, naturally caring, naturally sharing operating system. That is what I would describe as the sixth move. And I will only add to it that we will solve this story through the later part of the 20th century and into today through the myth of the selfish gene, which of course is a fallacy because yes, we are wired to survival, but we are wired to survival individually through the collective survival. We have learned evolutionarily that our chance of survival was actually through collaboration and sharing and caring. So that's a lie right there. We were also sold the theology of self-interest as the one primary driver of human life, which again is not true, but we were sold through the middle of the 20th century, that kind of theology coupled with scientific measures and what you had was an irresistible, never to be unleashed or liberated from, again, type of a perfect storm. So I'll give you that back for you to dance with that, please. Well, it takes me straight to Economics 101. I studied economics back when it was like when it first appeared as something to be taught in schools. And the first lesson that we got was exactly what you're saying. So the first lesson was the human has four needs, four basic needs in economics, food, clothing, shelter. Okay. And then the fourth drive is luxuries. And that was economics 101. So therefore, luxuries is how you then see how successful a person has been in their life. Now, years later, I'm thinking on this thinking, you know, there would be an alternative model like food, clothing, shelter, and human purpose, or food, clothing, shelter, and personal development, or food, clothing, shelter, and spiritual enlightenment. But no, the education, which went to all the little heads sitting in that room, and it was simultaneously happening in all classrooms around Britain, was the fourth thing is luxuries. And that's the driving power, just like you're saying, the selfish gene. And it was getting right into the 13, 14, 15-year-olds. 
And that's the boomer education. So not surprising that in with that boomer education and with economics being kind of almost a god of this particular civilization at this time. It's a bit biblical, but it's a bit like you've got the choice between mammon, you know, economics would be the modern name, I think, for that particular entity. But you're all meant to bow down to the economics, but they miss the fact that economics entirely depends on ecology. And the reality of that is beginning to be hit as part of the human predicament. Been able to put that off from you know the 1960s to now, that could be kind of put on the back burner, but it's literally a burner and it's coming onto the front burner rapidly, which is that economics cannot survive without a planetary ecology. So luxuries become a luxury we can't afford. Luxuries create this massive, you know, these days we say carbon footprint, but there's a lot more to it than a footprint. So we are already describing, both in what you're saying in the picture we are painting, the seventh move. I'll just codify it in language. So the sixth move was establishing the systems, the institutions, the power structures that are not life-giving and not life-supporting and not life-enhancing, but are really life-exploiting and life-sucking, turning, converting the human from the creative being that we are to the economic unit and the consumer consumption unit that we were viewed to become. So what is then the seventh move? The seventh move is very insidious. It is the move to normalize all the first six and to ultimately make us believe and simply expect that that is normal. In, for example, as you were describing, economic 101, you being in the classroom with many others, being told that that is the way of the world was a simple way of normalizing that paradigm. And ultimately, the entire incentive structure and the neurotransmitters that that generated, we can describe as propagating and fostering an unnatural, distorting operating system that was designed to do three things. First, to be able to handle all those six moves we were describing so that you're not crushed by it, you must be able to handle it. Second, to indeed normalize it. So this is what is expected. And third, create a reinforcing loop such that you can excel in it. That's what the operating system that we are describing ultimately created, ultimately creating in the process a whole unnatural brain running amok based operating systems and the neurotransmitters that drive this on an ever accelerated way. So this is not us making a rant against industrialization or against innovation or against free markets and against all the good sides of it. What we are trying to distill and decipher is that the entire journey has been hijacked, not by some conspiratorial powers, but by the, those moves and what you described earlier as the secondary and tertiary consequences of what, how one leads to another, ultimately positioning us in a place where our brains are hijacked, such that the dowser in your conversation the other day saying, I feel like going to the casino. <laughs> and three minutes later, the body says, no, you don't. 
But most of the time, for most people, if you are a trader on Wall Street, you are so much in your head, we are totally separated from your body and from the natural environment. And that is the, how I will describe the seven moves that land us in this predicament. That's a, it's well measured and added up. And the predicament that we find ourselves in then is how to re-naturalize to the natural worlds. Like we're in disharmony, but part of us is in harmony, naturally so. And even if we look at our brain, part of our brain is in harmony because it's automatically working with our systems. But then we have our, I like to call it our voluntary brain. Our voluntary brain is busily doing other things, but there's nothing wrong with our brain. I think that's a really important thing. Our brain is not to blame. It's the programs that have got in it. And I think that's an important distinction because we don't want to be, in a way, bashing ourselves. You know, we don't want to be saying bad, bad brain. No, it's just that the brain has been given false programs, programs that are non-effective. And our predicament is that those programs are operational in the world and they're operational in us because they were put there through the years of our growing up. And therefore, we respond with those programs. This is why we both work with coaching people. And this is where coaching comes to be so interesting in that one tries to come with a new possible program, but the existing programs always push back. They like what they already have, even if they know that they're programs that are causing damage. I worked with a group of nutritionists recently, and part of their predicament was trying to offer new kinds of physical food, but then the person's brain wanting the salt and sugar and the stimulants that it likes to get. So if we're going to, in some way, help change our, transform our mental programming, then it's finding ways constructively to bring in new patterns, new constructs, new paradigms, new frameworks. Many words for it, but it all comes to do with transforming from what we have, I suppose, from the human predicament into that human proposition, which is for further down the road. Yes. And so you're introducing this idea of renaturalization, which we said we won't get into today because what we actually framed on the front end, that there is going to be value in looking at what the predicament is without necessarily exiting and off-ramping the discomfort that reflection would naturally introduce us to because also when we finally embark on that journey, it's going to require not just one simple move because what we are advertising and what we are exploring is not an invitation to just go back, which is an impossibility. We can't go back and we don't want to go back to the 14 or 12 or fourth century. That's not the idea. And when we embark on the human proposition, we will have to integrate several moves. There is the, so what are the ways to liberate that conditioning that we are describing in those seven moves? And there is going to be adjacent and with it a different set of, actually I'll try to describe it this way. Our friend, Uncle Albert, showed us that you can't solve the problem at the level it was created. One way, David, to think about it is 
So byproduct of these seven moves and brains running amok and being separated from the enhancement and the natural vitality of life and being so locked in that toxic loop, one of the byproducts of that is cynicism. I describe cynicism as a toxic resignation, abdicating the flow and the impulse of engaging with life. And that occurs when the human system is experiencing the despair of the separation from the natural vitality of life. So how do you solve that? Well, we can't solve cynicism at the same level it was created. We will have to introduce several moves. For example, we will have to ask ourselves, so how do you reawaken? Remember, move one and move two was Let's take knowledge and knowing and put it outside of ourselves as an external product shaped by fixed devices, not by living processes. So in the search to address and redress cynicism, we can't, I'm saying, solve it at the same level. We will have to ask, how do you reawaken in a person the sense of reverence, a sense of awe, a sense of astonishment? And how do you do that? and not introduce orthodox, old-fashioned, conservative reverence, but a reverence that is ambidextrously embracing what can sometimes be described as irreverent curiosity. So almost two things that are opposite. Be so irreverent in the sense of daringly inquiring into spaces that people don't usually proposed to explore and inquire into doing that and bringing into it reverence. I'm demonstrating an example of how we will approach cynicism. So what am I saying? I'm saying we will have to look at the naturalization. We will have to look at the developmental dimension of it. We will have to look at the interpersonal, communal, socioeconomic dimension of it. And we will have to embrace dimensions that you often lead and teach, which are the energetics and the spiritual dimensions. All of that will have to be part of transitioning from the predicament to the proposition, the human proposition. Today we are trying to not offer a quick solution, but are inviting that we almost develop a capacity to stay with the predicament in a detached and still discomforted, uncomfortable way, such that we stay with it to see where it will lead us inside in terms of the yield, the energetic, the ready yield to open the next steps of the journey. So as we said at the beginning, it's being able to start from where we actually are. Yeah. Which is we're inside that human predicament. We're born in this particular, at this time. We're not born, as you say, in the 14th century. We're not born in the 12th century. We can't go back and become shaman. You know, that's a popular thing these days is let's go back into the past and discover magical, magical ceremonies from 2000 years ago. Those can still have efficacy and work at a certain level, but they're not the future. So the future is, I mean, this is such a concept that in our predicament, the future isn't necessarily a replay of what's already been that we actually do have the option. I call it in, in my work, the human superpower, which is to practice an intervention, that we can actually practice an intervention in our own head. You know, that you can actually have a thought pattern running 
and a feeling that's accompanying that thought pattern. And we have the ability, unlike anything else on the planet, to actually intervene and say, stop, stop that thought and cancel that thought and replace it with something different. And we have the ability at a world level to do that if we can get ourselves into that place. But the first thing is, if we don't know we're in a predicament, we're not going to do anything about it. So I think that's exactly right, Aviv, to be inside the predicament. Because when a human realizes that, as an example, a growing level of pain, that's when something is caused to change. So, but if we're in the predicament and we think, oh, this is normal, and I'm going to have, I've got two weeks vacation coming up, and I've just got myself a new motor car, and my something else that's happening over my niece is just getting her college degree and pretty right with the world. We don't realize that we're in a predicament that needs attention. And it takes a lot to get our attention because we tend to, exactly what you're saying, we tend to run our already pre-existing seven-step program in a way. That is, we tend to stay within the program that we already know because there's that immortal saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, as we go on with what we already have, as long as it's just about working by majority. And that's a lot to do with the programs that we run. So nothing wrong with our brain, nothing wrong with our body, but some of the software needs attention. And when we look at the world and what's happening, we look at the results of the software. That's right. I wonder for years, the differentiation between the world, to be a person of the world and a person of the planet And it's very interesting because what I realized is to be a worldly person is to be pickled in what the human race has already been doing and the precedents that have been set. To be a planetary person means actually connecting into the energies, frequencies, forces of the planet as she is today, including the planetary forces within us. So that's when I realized there's a reason why there's two different words. There's being a person of the world and being a person of the planet or a person of the universe but a worldly person is kind of steeped in, steeped in the precedent of that seven-step system. It's a good. It's a yeah. A worldly person is born of that seven-step system. We naturally will get in the future to being a universe person and Homo universalis. But today, again, we focused on this story that enables us to say, as you said, there is nothing wrong with the brain. It's just been captured, and it's been captured in a program that's unnatural and alien to the natural intelligence of the human system, which is not just brain-based, but all systems, whole person-based. And one of the, just to not lose the specificity there, one of the byproducts of that brains running amok with the neurotransmitters that drive that exploitative, extractive, greed-based economic paradigm that views us all as consumers, what it unleashed in the brain is the, the brain's desire to, when that separation from the environment took place, to the brain's craving to assert independence, gain control, and win its immortality because the brain hates the idea of mortality. The human moral instinct has no problem with the cycle of life and death. But the brain looks at that and says, I don't want to die. I want to be here forever. Which is why you have super billionaires 
working very hard to upload their consciousness to cyberspace so they live ever after in that form, missing the point that actually, no, this thing is meant to decay and give way to something else, which is part of the exploration of the human proposition. I think we're about approaching the landing point here. One of the reasons we framed, David, those seven steps is because it became very popular in recent years to put everything on social media. And it's the social media and the smart devices. And what we attempt to trace here, that all the destructive behaviors were already there before the internet revolution and before the social media revolution and so on, those simply accelerated in a very dramatic way, those processes. And so that's where we are today, the human predicament, step one, the seven moves and the brain-body conundrum. How would you bring us to a pause point today? That we are in a predicament and there is a way out of the predicament because we have the superpower of conscious choice. But it's not a matter of, it's firstly a matter of getting really inside what that predicament is in a serious way. And then realizing that like the tide, it's going to not come in all at once. It's going to take a series of interventions and it's a process. It's not an instant. Again, part of that programming is we're trained to want things instantly now. Whereas the reality is not any farmer knows you can't put the seed in the ground, come back the next day and go, where are the carrots? I, I planted them yesterday, right? It all takes the time that it takes according to the planet's laws. And there are actual laws, planetary laws that govern behavior here. And part of being in harmony is knowing about timings of things. And so we might want to have an instant result, but any farmer, any person who works with the land can say, no, it doesn't work that way. And the same with working with our brain and working with our body. If we've had years of having certain programs put in place, we can't expect to just change the programming overnight. We need to then say, oh, this is like a serious, lighthearted, but serious endeavor. And that means multiple applications. It's not just a one-off, world looks for the one-off magic bullet, as they call it, but it's a series of applications that gradually make the difference. And that's being realistic about our predicament. And that's why with current openings, as we've spoken about, it's moving into a series as we seek to look at different aspects of both the human predicament and the human proposition. It is a journey going somewhere. Like there is an awareness that it's a journey going somewhere and we discover the intelligence of it as we engage with it. Wonderful. So we are plowing and cultivating the soil of the human predicament and putting the seeds of the human proposition and promise. Yes, good farmers. Yes, to be continued. Thanks, Aviv. Thank you for listening to Portals of Perception. If you're enjoying these dialogues, we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com slash portals. Visit portalsofperception.org for exclusive content. Please share this episode with a friend and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.